Good afternoon, brethren. Glad to see so many of you here. And there really are many of you here today, so that's wonderful. I don't think we have any other major church group coming with us that I know of, but at any rate, uh, a lot of folks here, and we're certainly growing. I want to publicly warn, give a warning uh, to Mr. Rand Millich in Kansas City. He only has about 200, 210, 15 people there. We're closing in quickly. <laughs> we're gaining on Kansas City. <laughs> so that's good. Anyway, we're grateful for that and for the growth that we have and uh, very thankful to God. Welcome any guests that may be here. We must have some guests here today and appreciate your coming up to say hello. I don't know all of you, and I would try to say hello if I possibly can and enjoy that. So please come up. Oh, we're glad to see Mr. and Mrs. Gustin here today. Maybe Mr. Ames mentioned that, but I know he'd been ill, and good to see you. And uh, we have, a, of course, a wonderful occasion with, I guess it was mentioned about Mr. Hess while I was out. I don't know. Anyway, their anniversary, their 49th anniversary today, and that's a wonderful thing as well. Very good example. We have so many people having uh, many, many years of marriage, and that uh, the family is such an important thing, and it is good to set an example in that way. Well, brethren, the work is certainly growing, and we're grateful. We're thankful to God. Again, I got a report this week with a great number of brand-new people coming along with us. The number of prospective members continues to grow, the new PMs coming in. And I usually add up in my own just uh, way the last four months of you know this year plus the four months of previous year, and we keep getting more people proportionally. So we are grateful for what God is doing. We are going to have hundreds of new people coming with us, brethren. And when I speak to you, I, I think you know I'm speaking there to the, the camera. And we're talking to the brethren in Perth, Australia, and, and Johannesburg, and uh, over around the world. But counting the whole world, we're certainly going to have hundreds of people coming with us in the next year or two. And probably thousands later, because we sense... And it's not difficult to sense with the various statistics coming along that we are beginning to have a more broad-based impact by far the last six to nine months than we have ever had. And so probably thousands, and I mean that, thousands of our separated brethren and other fellowships will come with us eventually as they see these things happening. Some are beginning to do that already, and we're grateful for that. And around the world, I mean, we probably will have that as they see where Christ is working. And that doesn't mean we're better, but we're trying to follow the pattern that Christ showed through Mr. Herbert Armstrong for 52 years. And we're trying to improve upon what he did. We don't want to make his mistakes, as I've said, because we'll make plenty of our own. <laughs> we know that. So we don't want to be arrogant about it, but we're trying to grow as best we can, which he would want us to do and certainly Christ would want us to do. So we're going to have a lot more people coming. How will we receive the brand new people? And how will we receive our former brethren who may come with us after waiting a few years? Why did you take so long? No, we shouldn't say that. We should not have that attitude. It does take some people more time to figure out what to do. They've been out there. They've been hurting and wondering and praying. And finally it dawns on them what is really going on. And they come with us. And we can be very grateful for that. And remember, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The Jews had the knowledge first, but some of them, Jesus said, would be last of all into God's kingdom because they didn't appreciate what they had. Some may have come with us early on. In fact, a number did come with us early on, and they're gone. Others have come in, maybe having suffered more, seeing what's going on out in the world or out in other Church of God fellowships, and they may come in and stay and end up having a higher reward than those who came first. 
And we want to understand that. I remember one guy that was a super right wing. We got a bunch of super right wing guys coming with us right at first because they heard that Rod Meredith was very conservative. And some of them were really super right wing. And this one guy, I better not give his name, but in fact, I'm not sure of his whole name anyway, but let's call him John. I think that was his first name. But anyway, back in Texas somewhere, Texas is a big place, all right? A lot of Johns there. But he came... He got, came with us at first, and my wife may remember him, and he, he got on the phone. He was always calling me, and I was very interested because we were so small, and anyone who called me personally, we would try to encourage them and bring them along, and he'd tell me what's happening and this and that. I could sense he was super right-wing, though, and I tried to talk him out of being so strict and so this and so that. And finally, he said, well, Dr. Meredith, he said, you know what happened the other day? He said, I live out, he lived out of town in the country, and it's sort of a, just the edge of the city place at least. And he said, well, my neighbor's dog just kept barking and barking, and I couldn't get it to stop. He said, I finally got in a 30-30, and I just shot him. Oh, that's a nice right-wing <laughs> approach. I said, John, they may put you in jail for that, don't you? That's not the way to be. And I gave him a lecture on Christianity and kindness and forgiveness and mercy and everything else. He never called again. <laughs> well, you know, okay. I didn't worry about it because I realized he was going to be a hindrance to other people because he was so strict. So we don't want to be too strict and we don't want to be too liberal we want to aim for the middle. We won't get there perfectly. I'm not perfect in the middle, and no one else is except Jesus Christ. That is the proper middle. But at any rate, we should try to be balanced. But we do have people that are going to begin coming with us. And what is our church atmosphere? Is it going to be real strict or real liberal or what? Brethren, God is building a family, and I think we all know that. All of us are going to be full sons and daughters of God in the family of God, in the resurrection. And we're going to have to learn to love each other now because we're going to have to interact with each other. We won't have physical bodies, but we will still have our emotions to a degree and we will have feelings and we'll have our same mind and attitude to a degree. Hopefully we will be growing along the way, but we will be the same basic personalities throughout all eternity. And we've got to think about that. Can I love this person forever? Can I forgive this person forever? Of course, once we're in age spirit, I guess we won't have to keep forgiving. We won't make the same mistakes. But nevertheless, we'll have these attitudes going in there. We've got to watch it because God is building a family. And we know that the kingdom of God and the church of God, in a sense, supersedes even the human family in certain ways. And let me explain. I'm not trying to have you give up your human family. I certainly don't give up mine. But as the end approaches, we want to think about this. Turn with you would to Luke chapter 14 in your New Testament. Luke chapter 14, a very familiar passage, but we need to apply it in this way. Many came to Christ. Great multitudes went with him in verse 25. Great multitudes. And Jesus turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, all right, if anyone comes to Christ, if anyone wants to be a real Christian, what should he do? And does not hate and we know, of course, God's one of God's commandments is to honor your father and mother so you don't hate them. But the Greek word, as the commentaries explain, is a comparative term. It means to love less. Really, they should have translated it that way. But if any man comes to God, if anyone comes to Christ and does not love less by comparison, his own father, his own mother, his own wife, his own children, 
his brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. You really have got to learn to love God and love Christ more than you love your human family, even though you may love them. How can I love God more than I love my wife? How can I love God more than I love my mother? She's dead now, but she was a wonderful mother and helped me thousands or tens of thousands of times if I go back and think of all the things she did and all the patience and kindness that she showed me for all those years. And even after she was dead, as I've explained, why I would get these things. I finally got busy, so busy, being her legal guardian, I turned it over to my sister, Mrs. Ames, and Mr. and Mrs. Ames walked over, and every now and then they'd give us some extra money, a thousand, not masses of money, but from mother's bonds or whatever that was in her will that were due and coming in. So even after her death, my mother helped me, and I thought, Mother keeps on giving. She keeps on giving and giving and giving, as so many mothers do. And I can always love and honor her. But how could I love God more than I love my mother or my family? Well, because everything that is good in my mother or my wife or my children or my family or anyone else is only there because God put it there. He gave them their ability. He gave them their personality. And to the degree that they walk with God, he gave them help. And even those who were not converted, I remember my uncle and my father telling about my old Methodist grandmother I've described so much, how they would get up sometimes accidentally real early in the morning because Grandma would get up at 4.30 or 5 and have her housework done by 7 or so whatever less. She just was an old country woman from Oklahoma and used to getting up early. Then she'd take her nap in the afternoon. I wouldn't know anything about that, of course. <clears throat> Most of you brethren know I do take a nap in the afternoon the last few years, so I'm kidding. But anyway, she did that. But my dad and Uncle Paul would say they sometimes heard her praying. She'd get down in the basement where they didn't know when they were boys, and she was praying to God, please help Carl or Paul, or I was her only grandson, Roderick, be a minister. She prayed and prayed her heart out that God would cause one of us to be a minister. And two out of three became ministers. My uncle became an evangelist because of his writing, writing the 58 lessons of the original Ambassador College Bible Correspondence Course, which Mr. Armstrong said strengthened the brethren more than any other written thing that we ever produced. Because it wasn't just one article or one magazine. It went on for 58 lessons. I know some of the brethren say, oh, I got all 48 lessons, or I got all 32. No, you got the modern version. The real full version was 58 lessons. And frankly, it would have gone on even more. But one younger minister got it cut short because he wanted to put the money somewhere else, and Mr. Armstrong allowed that. Anyway, God called him, and then God later called me to the ministry about the same time and did hear her prayers because she was sincere. And God does hear the prayers of some people to a degree. They don't, they're not called, but God knows their sincerity. So we love those people. But everything good in my grandmother, everything good in your father, your mother, your wife, your husband came there because God put it there. He's the giver of every good and every perfect gift. And we've got to put him ahead of everything else when you really understand it, when the chips are down. That doesn't mean you put the human church first, but in certain senses the church becomes our family. Our subject today is our church family. I think we need to understand that, brethren, because things are going to get tough and we're going to need one another perhaps more than we realize. God is a family and the church in some ways has to be part and barely be our family. Many of our young people or single people may not even have a family. 
Some of them may have been kicked out by their family or their family has died or deserted them or broken homes, divorces, and their parents are not around. What is their family? The church becomes their family. The church becomes their family. And we have to think about that because that's a very, very important thing in the mind of God. Let's turn back to, if you would at this point, Matthew 10. Turn to Matthew chapter 10 and begin here in verse 34. Jesus Christ is speaking, our Savior, so He ought to know. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. The Protestants say, oh, silent night, holy night, and all that's nice peace. No, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, we didn't have any terrible, awful thing in our family, but in my original family growing up, my sister and I were called, and my dad and my mother and my other sister, Patricia, were not called. And I remember my mother was really upset when I came to Ambassador College and wrote me some very strong letters at first. Later, she came back to the campus at Big Sandy, and a number of the older ladies, Mrs. Hammer and others, had her over for tea and and coffee and donuts and visits, and then she came to realize that we were pretty normal. We weren't all standing on top of a stump waiting for the end of the world to come. So she became more kind and attended and so on to some extent, not regularly, but as a visitor. But nevertheless, there was that separation with the other parts of our family. And many families, because I met them over and over on the early baptizing tours as we would start the churches, uh, you know, their, their other parts of their family hated them, literally hated them. I know Raymond Manair and I met this woman in Tennessee where her husband was beating her, physically beating her, and it was pretty awful, and she finally left him. But uh, she even had injury and so on because she was, you know, in the church. A man's foes will be those of his own household, Jesus said. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So you can't worship your children either. You want to love them, you want to take care of them, but if they grow up and rebel, you can't follow them or kind of pull back or something like that because you have your eternal life and you've got to put God first and God tells you to do that. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me, you see the trials and tests and suffering we go through as Christians, is not worthy of me. He who finds his life, I'm going to find my life. I'm going to save my money and I'm going to have this extra home and I'm going to have this airplane and I'm going to do this and that and something else. It's not wrong to have all those things, but if people begin to accumulate stuff beyond what they ought to do and their minds on that, they're not really putting the kingdom of God first. We see people like that and there have been many in the church and we see that they dropped away. I've met a number of very wealthy men in the church of God and most of them left. I won't name any of them, but they had so much physical stuff it hurt them. Jesus said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's like going through an eye of a needle. He who finds his life, you know, you're going to make your family your life, and you're going to be with your children, your family, whatever, or have physical things or success in your business or whatever you mean by family, finding your life, doing your thing that makes you happy. If that's your goal, you will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So you've got to give your life to God. But the point of this particular sermon and the thrust here today is the church is our family. 
And we really need to think about that more, brethren, because as I say, hard times are coming and we may need one another perhaps more than we realize even right now while we're in a, a peaceful time. Uh, turn, if you would now, to Mark chapter 3, the third chapter of Mark. And let's begin here in verse 31. After Jesus had uh, talked about this evil spirit or blaspheming the spirit of God, Mark 3.31, then his brothers and his mother came. Here is Jesus' physical family. He didn't want to dishonor them, but he did not put them first. I'll digress a moment here. The Roman Catholics say Mary was the mother of God. Well, if Mary was the mother of God, what was Jesus doing here? You think about it. Listen to this. His mother and brother were there standing outside this big group of people around him, and they sent into him. He must have had a few hundred people there and calling him, said, come out and talk to us. And a multitude was sitting around him, and, he, and they said to him, look, your mother, you know, who is not the mother of God, and your brothers are outside, his physical brothers. Mary had other children. It names five brothers and two sisters. She may have had other, mentions at least sisters, plural. He may have had more than two, but at least two. They're outside seeking you. They want you to come out. Well, he was right there in the middle of teaching God's Word, and at that time, certainly, his brothers were not converted. Maybe his mother wasn't either. Of course, none of them were fully converted, but his brothers weren't even interested yet. They were still against him, as you read from other Scriptures. And he answered and said, Who is my mother? Listen, brethren, who is my mother? Who is my or my brothers? And he looked around at the circle of those who sat around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Here is my family in the middle of God's church, in the middle of God's people. Christ's disciples, those who are willing to do the truth, those who are willing to share the basic purpose of human existence with one another. Here is my family. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's what Jesus Christ said. So that's not my opinion, and we're not trying to get too strict here. That's what he said, and all these things make that pretty clear when you think about it. I remember years ago saying a number of times, some of you have undoubtedly heard me, I've mentioned probably five or ten times over the last 40 or 50, 40 years or so, at least, 45, that if I had to be stranded on a desert island, you know, you had an airplane crash and just two of you survive and you're out there on the desert island, so to speak, and no one else is around and you don't know what to do or whether you're going to get off or not. I said, and I still feel that way, that if Mr. Harold Jackson was there with me, I would rather him be there than members of my unconverted family, my father, my mother, my unconverted sister. Mr. Jackson was our leading black minister, and I loved him. I liked him. I brought help bring him into the church and baptized his wife. I accepted his baptism because Harold Jackson was baptized by an offshoot of the Sardis Church back in Iowa when I was six years old. So I didn't baptize him, brethren. I was just six years old. But I accepted his baptism. And he was so humble and so dedicated that two different times after that, he wanted to go over it again. He wanted to go over it again, so I went over it with him and my uncle and maybe Dr. Hay. And, and he still wondered at times. I gave this sermon, uh, False Conversion, a Mortal Danger. Some of you read the article later that I wrote about that, how people think they're converted, they're not. And quite often that's the case. And that made him think again. So on his insistence, we brought him all the way to Pasadena, which he wanted to do. I shouldn't say we didn't bring him, but he wanted, and got him with Mr. Herbert Armstrong. 
And after hearing the story of his life and how he obeyed God every step of the way, what he knew, but he didn't know every detail of the holy days and certain things from the Sardis church and being alone. And there was no, you know, radio church of God or later worldwide back there. He said, Mr. Jackson, you always obeyed the truth as you understood it from the time of your baptism. You're a converted man. Your whole mind just shows that. And he sure was. I would rather have been stranded on the desert island with Mr. Jackson. Mr. Jackson and I would have had far more to talk about, far more day after day, being abandoned on a desert island than I would with my unconverted relatives. And I mean that. So Mr. Jackson was part of my family. The last meal that my first wife, Margie, ever prepared for a guest, not for me or our immediate family, but for any guest, was for Mr. Harold Jackson. He came to our home in La Cunada, right across from the Jet Propulsion Lab, and we had a home there in an area called Flint Ridge. He came to that home, and Margie and I and Mr. Jackson had a fine meal together, and then her condition got worse, and a few months later she was dead. But her last meal was serving Mr. Jackson, who was a dear friend, part of our family. Brethren, I don't care whether we were black or white or old or young or fat or skinny. You fat people need to repent. <coughs> Quit being fat. <laughs> Us skinny people better exercise more and put on weight if we can get muscles. Whenever I try to put on weight, it seems to go right here anymore. I have a little tiny pot, but I can't seem to get big around my chest and shoulders as I get older. But we all need to change. But if someone's born male or female or black or white or tall or short, you can't change that necessarily. And we're all in God's family. We're all in God's church. And that's got to override all the other stuff when we really understand it. And we should understand it, but many of us still don't do as much as we should. Turn to Romans chapter 2, if you would, brethren. Romans 2. And we'll turn in Romans 2 to verse 28. The apostle Paul said, For he is not a Jew... And brethren, I think most of you know he's talking about a spiritual Jew here, a real Christian. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. You know, a normal physical Jew, which is a good thing, of course, as he goes on to explain in the next chapter. But you're not a Jew just for that reason. But he is a Jew, the real Jew that God looks to today, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. If you've been spiritually circumcised, if this fleshy part of your heart's been cut off that makes you want to do my thing and just go the way you want to go and water things down and make excuses or get your feelings hurt against others or have your mind on self, self, self all the time, that's got to be circumcised. That's got to be cut off. And that's what makes you a spiritual Jew a real Christian in God's sight. Turn now, if you would, to Galatians, if you would. Galatians chapter 3. And here the Apostle Paul says something similar, as many of you know this very, uh, of course, fundamental scripture. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have you been baptized? Really? Did you really bury yourself under the water? Did you mean it to surrender, to give your life to God? And surrender to God unreservedly to say, my life is not my life anymore. It's your life and you really meant it. All right, if you've been baptized, you put on Christ. 
Christ then becomes increasingly your life and your attitude and the way you think and the way you are. There is neither Jew nor Greek, and we can say there's neither black nor white, nor Mexican, nor Oriental, nor male nor female, nor slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But in spiritual matters, and that ought to include most of our activities and church activities and parties and having each other over and loving each other, fellowshipping with each other, praying for each other, genuinely loving and serving one another, we're neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Some have used this to say we're all one in every way. Well, if it literally means that, then we should have unisex bathrooms. Remember, it says here, male or female. No, we're still male and female. <laughs> there are certain physical differences that God wants us to respect. And, of course, the world's even trying to water that down, have everybody use the same bathroom today and put boys and girls together in the college dorms and, and think nothing's going to happen or they don't care if it does happen, actually. They could, they could care less about morals. So it doesn't mean that, but it's talking about every normal form of fellowship and love and association. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. You're the son of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. All of us are sons of Abraham and potential sons of God. And that overrides all the other things. That's right. I would rather have been with Mr. Hell Jackson, our black minister, if I had to spend several years on a desert island. He would have been marrying me and I would have been marrying him and producing children. <laughs> you know what I mean? But we would have had so much to fellowship about, to talk about, to share far more than I would with my worldly relatives. And that's what God, the way God wants us to think. And I really meant that, too. I said it while he was still alive, and I think I said it maybe once in front of him. I don't know. I wasn't trying to necessarily flatter him. He knew I loved him, and he loved me. But anyway, we should try to be that way the best we can. Let's turn to Ephesians now, if you would, chapter 2 of Ephesians, brethren, and begin here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. Paul is writing here about the different facets of humanity, and here are the main two different parts of humanity as he breaks it down here, are the Gentiles, which isn't, of course, just black or Mexican. It's talking about all Gentiles, and that would include the Chinese and, and even many Eastern European Poles and Czechs and Hungarians and Russians. You know what I mean. They're, they're the white race, but they're not, they're not of the house of Israel. So it's talking about, remember, when we're talking about Israel versus Gentile, it's not, not a matter of color. In many instances, it's talking about a difference there, whether you're a descendant of Israel or not. So he's saying, through Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. He's broken down that middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, he describes in the other verses, which we've uh, preached many times. Now, therefore, brethren, verse 19, Ephesians 2, 19, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, you Gentiles who weren't in Israel, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? Of the household. The household is a family. You're members of the household of God. All of us are the begotten family of God. We're begotten sons of daughters of the great Creator. And that deep spiritual relationship overrides everything else. You're members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
not just the Old Testament prophets, but the apostles, but the New Testament, but the Old Testament prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God uh, in the Spirit. So God inhabits you. God lives in you. Christ lives in you through the Holy Spirit, you see, and it brings you totally together in virtually every relationship and a family atmosphere that ought to be in God's church and ought to be built upon. Brethren, as we grow toward being the family of God, members of God's eternal family, we should really urgently love, serve, and treat each other as a family. We ought to think about that, to really love, serve, help, encourage, pray for, and treat each other as family now. In Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read quite a bit of this particular chapter. Uh, I may skip some verses, but in Romans chapter 12, we have a wonderful exposition of the basic attitude that we should be having in this whole relationship. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable, or as it may be translated, intelligent service. It's not intelligent or rational to offer animal sacrifices anymore. Your reasonable service, your intelligent service, is to give your own body, your own life, your time, your talents, your treasure, Everything you have to God as a living sacrifice now. That doesn't mean you, you know, give away all your money now or that you kill yourself or now to give your body, but you try to serve God with that. Serve God with that the best you can. And of course, trying to stay alive and take care of your family and do the other things you need to do, but consider it all as God's. It's not really yours. You're just a steward. You're a temporary steward of this body. I have a human body, but I'm a temporary steward of that. It's God's body, and I should take care of it to honor God. It's not my body. It's God's body. And whatever time I, God gives me, a few more weeks or a few more years, that's God's time. He's giving me. And I'm living on borrowed time because I'm living beyond the three score and ten, and I need to be conscious of that. I better get it right because I may not live forever in this flesh, but neither will you. <laughs> I don't care how young you are. You're not going to live forever in this flesh. So we need to get real and do what God really wants us to do. Do not be conformed to this world. So many of our people and a lot of our young people are caught up watching television several hours a week or sometimes even several hours a day. You say, it's not all evil. I know it's not all evil. There's not someone murdering everyone every day or something like that every hour. But certainly if you watch very much of it, you see murder after murder. You see lust after lust, implied adultery and sex and fornication and all kinds of rotten attitudes portrayed over and over and over. And now they're even getting into dirty language and uncouth language over and over all through the day on all the major networks plus these awful networks that poor give some kind of uh, R-rated or X-rated movies. You have to subscribe to that, I guess. But it's pretty awful. If that pours into your mind, <clears throat> that's your mental food. That's what you're going to reflect in the way you think and the way you are. So be conformed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get your mind cleaned up. Get your mind transformed. 
that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What does the Creator who gives me life and breath want me to be like? For I say through the grace given to me, God gave Paul this opportunity, this grace of being an apostle to teach us, to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And brethren, we have people in God's church, in this church, and certain other church of God groups. Some are even worse than we are, perhaps, in the way they approach it. We're the superior ones. We're intellectual, and we're above other people, and we're like this and like that. They have this attitude. God doesn't want that attitude. That attitude stinks, frankly, before God. Don't think of yourself highly above others, but to think soberly. God calls the weak of the world. And we've got to not evaluate them and think they're less than we are spiritually just because we have more education or because we have more money or because we dress better or anything like that. That stinks. Sorry for that Missouri expression, but it's the truth. That attitude stinks. That is not Christian. Don't be that way. But think soberly. Realize your life is like a wisp of smoke, as James says, like a vapor that appears for a little while, just a little wisp of steam coming out. The wind comes, it's gone. That's our life. That's your life compared to eternity. So as James says also, if a rich man comes in and he has fine clothes and you kind of, you know, sidle up to him and pay too much attention to him and try to impress him, and then a poor man comes in, you say, well, you sit over here in a corner. I don't have time to talk to you. What does that show God? That shows God that you are too proud. You're not humble. You're not willing to serve his little people. And you will not have the degree of reward throughout all eternity you would have if you would humble yourself and try to serve everybody in the family, in the church, whoever they may be. Some of the most wonderful people we ever met on the tours and later in God's church were very humble people. I think I told you one of the happiest, and you could just see the radiant joy coming out of their face was a young Cajun couple that I think Burke McNair and I met back in 1952 down near Homa, Louisiana, in the swamps where they recently were overrun by the hurricane. And they lived way out on a, a plank road that was so muddy that they put two planks, you know, running along side by side in the trucks. You had to drive on that thing or you'd be in the ditch or in the mud. <laughs> and we got way back near the end and we got in this place where they had a dirt, a little uh, sort of a lean-to type home with a tin roof. And the floor was dirt. They didn't have any wood or anything on the floor, a dirt floor. But the young woman, who was a very sweet woman, beautiful and she had kept it perfectly clean. It was tamped down, and no no trash was around. Everything was in order, and so on. They were very, very happy, that young couple. You could see that. They had grown up in that part of the country, I suppose. They loved each other. They loved God, and they were extremely happy. No television, no air conditioning, and no floor. They had an outhouse out back, <laughs> you know, but they were happy because they loved each other. And they love God. All right. Well, let's understand some of those things. God looks on that very well. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Were Berkman Nair and I better than those that young couple? Perhaps not. Maybe they were better Christians than we. I don't know. I'm not kidding. I really mean that. We don't know their heart. So let's not think we're better than others. We're all members of one body. 
and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them at prophecy. And by the way, brethren, in the New Testament, the word prophesy often means inspired preaching. Let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith. You see that described back in 1 Corinthians 14 about prophecy. Often meant inspired preaching, not just foretelling the future, but inspired preaching. Or ministry, if you're called to the ministry to serve others, let us use it use it in our ministering, or he who teaches in teaching. Give yourself to teach and to help and to build others. He who exhorts in exhortation. Exhorts means you better ought to. Well, I often preach that way, as you know. You better ought to, okay, <laughs> but you better do it heartily. He who gives with liberality. Those of you who are blessed with excess or good amount of material things ought to do it liberally. Often we find today, just as Jesus said, the ones who have the least give more proportionally to the ones who have the most. Little old widows and others will give right down to the bone. But those who have it are so used to protecting their wealth and kind of watching the angle so they're okay that they don't, they're not generous with God, you see. And God knows that. So you just have to think about it. You don't need to impress me, but try to impress God, because He's your Father. He's your Creator. He's the one who gives you life and breath. He who gives with liberality, do it generously. He who leads with diligence. If I am a human leader, and Dr. Manale and Mr. Ames and other human leaders here were to do it with diligence. He who shows mercy, though, don't show mercy grudgingly. Well, I'll forgive you maybe. No, do it with cheerfulness. Do it heartily. Really love them and forgive them and lay it to one side. Let love be without hypocrisy. Don't pretend to love people when you really don't or other things. Abhor what is evil. It's not wrong for us to preach powerfully against sin. God wants us to. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and tell my people their sins. God told his servants back in Isaiah 58.1. And we do that and should do that. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be very grateful for the good things. And there are good people in this society. They're not called yet by God, but some of them, when they're called, may turn out to be better than we are here and may have a higher reward if they do more with what they've been given to do with. And we need to realize that, not look down on them. God has not called them yet, but He's going to in His time. Be kindly affectionate to one another. So show that kindly affection to one another, you see. Try to do that. Build that in your personality as best you can. Some are just naturally more, you know, hail fellow, well-met type personalities. And that's good. That's not bad if you can use it to serve God. Others are more stiff or they're more afraid or they're timid or they're intense or they have a temper and they have to work on that to be kindly affectionate. God knows each of us has to do the best we can with what we have to do with. With brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Give preference to the other person, you see. Not lagging in diligence. When you serve others, do it with zeal. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You're not just serving the other person. You're serving the Lord. As Dr. Franz mentioned in his sermonette, these things he said you're to do. You're not doing it for those people. You're doing it for God. You serve the Lord Christ as Paul said in the book of Ephesians in another place. Rejoicing in hope. Have a positive attitude. Patient in tribulation. Be patient when going gets hard. 
continuing steadfastly in spirit, distributing to the needs of the saints. So try to help others in the church. They're your family. If you find someone even here, and we don't often do that as much as we should, brethren. If you read through the book of Acts, they were helping one another a lot more. And as I'll explain later, I know that we have our excuses today and some are real reasons. We've all come from different backgrounds. Back then they were all Jews at first. You know, the very, they were all Jews, a similar background, and most of them lived in and around Jerusalem. And it was easier today, some of our members up north of Statesville and others living way off south or out in the country, and they're not even close to each other geographically. And some of you, even here today, have been in a split. You know, where the church of God kind of came apart and you went over here and there. It takes you several months or a few years sometimes to begin to trust each other again and trust the church again the way you should because you think you've been hurt. And maybe you have been hurt. No one tied you up by your thumbs and tortured you, okay? <laughs> you know that. But you've been hurt. You feel disappointed. But get over it. <laughs> You're supposed to be a Christian now, and you don't have to put your faith and trust in me or Mr. Ames or anyone else. You put your faith and trust in God. And if you see that we are preaching the Word of God and we're doing the work of God and we're carrying out the right form of the government of God, not as dictators. We're not doing it perfectly. We don't do anything perfectly. But overall, in a right way to help and to build and to get the work going and keep us together, then you trust Christ. You trust Christ who's following the church. You see, that's where your trust is, not in human beings. I know that some people tried to adulate Mr. Armstrong way too much, and some still do, you know. They, they think you, you've got to swear that Mr. Armstrong was the Elijah before they'll let you in their church or this or that. Well, that's ridiculous. Mr. Armstrong never asked that himself at any time, would not. And I told you the story about the elder who got up in the headquarters in the house of God in Pasadena and gave this thundering, I was there and happened to hear it, thundering sermonette, God's one true holy apostle. And he said that five or six times in about a 15-minute sermonette. A week later, an airplane took off from LAX and landed somewhere in the south. That guy was on it. He never came back to Pasadena again. <laughs> Mr. Armstrong didn't want him there. He didn't want people adulating him. He didn't want people worshiping him. So that's not right. You honor him, honor someone in an office, but you don't worship them. You worship Christ. You worship Christ and God the Father, but you want to have zeal in doing that. So don't lag in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. He's the one you're serving. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Brethren, please never give up in prayer. If you get hurt, if you get discouraged, if you get disillusioned, you get down on both knees before God. That's what I try to do. I don't do it perfectly, but get down on both knees and say, Father in heaven, great God of the universe, please help me. Help me to understand. Help me to get over this deep, profound hurt that I'm feeling. Help me to work through this. Help me through your spirit. I'm weak. I need your help. And if you do that, God will help you. He will help you. Fervent in spirit. And of course, constantly praying. Distributing to the needs of the saints, helping your brethren, serving them, given to hospitality. Brethren, I remember quite often in the early days of this church, when Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong were kind of like a father and mother figure before all the other 
ministers came along to the same degree. Herman Hay and I and the two Raymonds, we called them, Raymond McNair and Raymond Cole, were sent to the field. So Herman and I became the college teachers and editors. And they said the two Raymonds went to the field. And Norman Smith was the guy, the technical guy, who worked over the radio studio. And that's kind of Mr. Armstrong put it that way himself. That's what happened to us. But Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong were, you know, the father figure and mother figure. We were all together and had love for each other, a great deal of family spirit. And the brethren were constantly having each other over in those days. There wasn't a feeling of, dis, of, uh, of, of, of doubting and disillusionment because no one had been disillusioned yet. You know what I mean? We hadn't had all the splits and problems, and the church was growing, and boy, it was wonderful. It was brand new truth, and we were there. And some of you know I talk about my friend, Mr. Hegbold, and Mr. Sidney Hegbold came with us, and his wife way back in the early 50s, and his brother Selmer Hegbold and his wife, and Mr. and Mrs. Pyle uh, from uh, Arkansas, and others like that. And they were really wonderful folks, and they helped, and they gave, and they served. I remember being at the Hegbold's home, either Selmer or Sidney, Sidney's Hegbold, many times, maybe dozens of times on a Saturday night. They would all more or less have open house. They'd have a big barbecue and different ones of the brethren would bring food and they'd cook and eat. we'd eat together after the Sabbath and visit together and love each other and talk together. It was wonderful. We had just a visit together virtually every Saturday night. And that not uh, we didn't all go every Saturday night. Some of us young guys would get together or date some pretty girl and go out to a restaurant. But I mean, many Saturday nights, we'd be there with the Hegbolts or take our girlfriend there too. But it was a wonderful family spirit. And people were doing that all over the place. Mr. and Mrs. Bill Rapp and Mr. and Mrs. Uh, uh, Pyle, as I've said, the older Piles, Norvell Pyle and his wife and so on. There was this spirit there of love and kindness all through the church. Everybody didn't have it, but so many did have it. My first assignment as a young minister, even before I was ordained, was to be sent up to Portland, Oregon. And uh, up there, why, I was all alone. There was not one single young woman anywhere near my age to date. And all before I'd been at the college with the girls and, and then uh, in the baptizing tours, you know, with another young man, busy, busy. Suddenly I was all alone in the rain and the fog of Portland <laughs> and also raising up the church in Seattle and go driving up there. And I got Cameron Avon Fun to drive up with me, these two young men, just to have someone to talk to. And some of you know them. But anyway, so I was alone, but I had wonderful help because Mr. and Mrs. Wolverton, you may remember, they wrote the Bible. He wrote the Bible story for children and the interesting pictures. And they would have me over just about once a week, pretty regularly. I think I didn't ask for them to go. Honestly, I didn't. I was kind of proud and maybe extra stiff and, and young man and so on. But they, they were really kind and they saw I was lonesome, so they would have me over. Uh, every every once every week and bur and uh, they would have a steak and I'd walk to the door and I remember the first time or two and and we'd have these tricks each time. Well, Basil was a you know a cartoonist, so he was a real comedian, very kind of just built like that kind of you know heavy set and jolly. And he'd push this bottle in my face. He said, "This is really good stuff. We're gonna have it." He made sure I saw it. Said, "Old tennis shoe." <laughs> so old tennis shoe was the cover. <laughs> so, but it was a fake. It was a funny label he'd put on there. And then he would say, when I started eating, he'd say, "Well, if you don't like anything, just throw it on the floor." Of course, his wife would kind of smiled and go like that. She was used to all his jokes, you know, because he, he knew we were going to throw it on the floor. But he had just one joke after the other, and they would encourage me and talk to me. 
And then uh, Chloe Shippert, Mr. Armstrong mentions her in his autobiography too. And uh, she was there and her husband was in the church, but he didn't come all the time. She was the zealous one. And Chloe was a very zealous woman. She was about the age of my mother, so you understand what I'm talking about. But she, she would have me over, uh, you know, about once a week also. So I got two home meals a week at least. I wasn't a very good cook, never have been. But Chloe would have me over and help me and encourage me. And every week, virtually, I would get a letter in the middle of the week. Here comes the mail. I was always my mother, my old mother had just left her. I always picture after I left home, I would write mother every week because I knew that old lady would go to the mailbox to see what's there. I was way off, you know, in the summer of 1945 working on a farm and the next, well, off in Oklahoma and then the next year off somewhere in 48, I was off in Oregon working in the woods and I'd ride home and I knew mother wanted to hear from me and I got used to that too and feeling, you know, a letter very important. Some young people, I know it's one or two of my younger boys, they, uh, they don't pay much attention to the mail. They just go by the Internet. But though back then it was a big deal to get a letter. I, I thought that's important. Uh, good news from afar. And so Chloe would write me this note. She was just lived 30, 40 miles outside of Portland. And every time she would tell me how helpful my sermon was, well, I knew that she was, she was mothering me. I sort of sensed that. You know what I mean? I thought, oh, I'm still practicing on this church. But she was encouraging. She told me whatever good point she thought I had, and that was very encouraging. And she would go all around that church. And whenever uh, there was a young woman in the Portland church who was giving birth to a baby, you could always count on Chloe Shippard being there, even though she was in her, well, I was in my 20s, so I guess she was about 50 years old or something at that time. And she would be there to take care of them or to bring them food or do something. Anyone sick, Chloe would be there or write them or call them all over the place. And others the same. But she and the Wolvertons, I guess, were the best. That atmosphere, loving, serving one another, it made you feel far, part of a family, part of the family. You were loved you were taken care of. You were appreciated. And brethren, some of these people around in your role right here, and you brethren around the world and the churches, you know, they've come in from different places. You don't know their background. You don't know the deep hurts that they've suffered and the things they've gone through and their hopes and dreams. Try to get better acquainted. Be merciful to them. They act a little different sometimes. Some of them act a little weird. But, you know, some people think I act a little weird sometimes, too. <laughs> so we've got to put up with each other. We've got to learn to love each other as fellow human beings called out of this mixed-up, confused world into the church of God, the begotten family, the begotten family of God to help each other, encourage each other, take care of each other. It doesn't have to be some big social thing where we strut around in special suits. I wear nice suits, but on the weekends and other times I wear my blue jeans or slacks or stuff. My favorite garb as I grew up all my life, clearing through Ambassador College, was blue jeans and a, and a T-shirt, you know. But Mr. Armstrong taught us ministers to dress up because that was expected of ministers. But that doesn't mean we ministers think we're superior because we wear nice suits, but it's sort of expected. And then I have these suits that I know our TV guys have tried to have us get a special fund uh, from the work to get, you know, special suits on TV. But I thought, well, we make enough, we'll just buy our own suits. So Mr. Ames and I buy our own suits, and those are the suits we wear on television. We don't have to have the work subsidizes, but we have reasonably nice suits. I've always wanted to have a Brioni suit. You see these ads, just word the one word, Brioni. 
But you know, when you go to price those suits, you could get a good used car for that suit. <laughs> so I don't have any Brioni suits. Don't intend to either. You know, a lot of things we might like to have if we were millionaires, but God has not called us to be millionaires today. But we want to dress if our office requires it, if your job requires it. Uh, Dr. Franz, who gave the sermonette, is a professor in a college down here of chiropractic and, and I guess a, a leading teacher, administrator. So he probably, if you wear a suit and tie or jacket and tie, I guess, to, to work as a teacher, and others may need to dress up for their job. Others don't. So just dress as best you need to, but at church try to wear your best for God to honor God. But that doesn't make us any better. That's the thing we've got to understand. That does make us one whit better to dress that way. And there are times that even we ministers should dress down and not always try to look too fancy if we're going to talk to poor people or go visit them or whatever. So God tells us to have that attitude. Given to hospitality. I always remember being at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Roy Hammer coming through on the baptizing tours and later when I would visit the area. Some of you know the Hammers are the ones that gave us the property for the college at Big Sandy. And when Raymond and I came through and later Burke and I, they insisted we stop. And so we'd stop. And she, she said, well, I know you boys. Give me your clothes. You need. And I, oh, no, I don't want some other woman washing my dirty underclothes. She'd say, look, I've had five boys. I know what boys are like. She said, give me your dirty clothes. Well, we finally did. She met it. And that was really nice. We got a nice clothes. Otherwise, we'd put them in the sink at night and try to halfway wash them out and hang them up over the bathtub. And she'd take care of us. She'd feed us and take care of us in every possible way. Part of a family. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Don't say, oh, we're the big shots. We can act more important than other people. No, don't have that attitude. You are not more important than other people. If you're a leader in the church of God, you are a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's who you are, a slave. A bond slave of Jesus Christ bought by Him. and you, He owns you. So we're not above anybody. Don't be wise in your own opinion, but associate with the humble. Learn to humble, associate with the humble people, the poor people. Help them. And you people in this church and you people in Johannesburg and London and New York and Los Angeles, find the poor people coming in and the, some of the people from different ethnic groups. Maybe some don't have as much. Try to help them. Do they need food? I remember some of our leading brethren would give food to other people. And one of our leading ministers, actually Dr. Hay, used to, the people would hear a, a doorbell and a ring when they'd heard they were sick or they had trouble and he'd hear about it. And they'd find a sack of food at the front door. And sometimes they didn't know who it was, but word got around. Some of them would rush out on the front porch real quick and look down the road. He'd always park a half a block there. It was Dr. Hay getting into his car, you see. He would give them food. And you can do that. Help each other. Don't just try to get credit for it. Give. Give. To get credit from whom? From God Almighty, your Father in heaven. So don't be wise in your own opinion. Repay to no one evil for evil. I'm going to get even. No, don't do that. God will take care of it. Have regard for good in the sight of all men, if possible, as much as depends on you. Live peaceably with all men. Try to live peaceably with everybody. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, trying to get even, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Eternal. In the fear of God, I've not tried to pray against my enemies. I really haven't, brethren. 
I've sometimes had a wrong attitude. You know, want me to get mad for a while. But it's interesting to me, without naming names, that some who tried to get rid of me, a lot of them are dead. Somehow it just worked out that way. And, of course, everyone who dies prematurely is not an enemy at all. We've had some of the most beloved people in the church die, too, so you can't always be sure about that, such as Mr. Carl McNair and Mr. Gwen, who were some of my best friends. But somehow this interesting how God takes care of things for those who get at you. He has a way of doing it. It's remarkable. It's remarkable how God takes care of that. Mr. Armstrong talked about these three people that fought him, just fought him way back in the early days. And two out of three died a pretty horrible death. And the third one ended up in an insane asylum. And Mr. Armstrong was not a liar. He used the names and at that time to some of us young ministers. And, and I know what happened. But anyway, God will take care of you. You don't have to get even ever. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, you know God will take care of him in time. If he hungers, feed him. He's a fellow human being. He's all mixed up. Feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Love your brethren. Forgive your brethren. Forgive outsiders. Outsiders are going to try to yell at you and scream at you and persecute you. And I've told my wife again and again and my children, because I don't want them to be unduly hurt, they're going to try to crucify me eventually if I'm still around, which I may not be to finish the work. I'm not saying I'm great, but if I'm still the human leader, they'll come after me. They'll come after Mr. Ames, the other presenter on television, and all of us who are leaders in the work. They'll try to nail our hides, and they will put our picture on the page of uh, their newspaper or magazine, as I've told you, uh, like that, you know, and catch you in some pose where you look really bad. And that's not hard to do with me because I'm not very photogenic in the first place. And they'll just catch you like that. And so they'll say, look, this wild guy is talking about the end of the world. And he's saying that, that, that you don't need to be patriotic and, and fight for your country. And he's wicked. Of course, I don't say don't fight for your country directly, but I say, well, we have another kingdom and we're not to kill. And you know what I mean? We expound what that means but they could put a subtle twist on it and make you look ridiculous and they're going to do that to me and mr ames and mr crockett and dr nail and mr Pardin and all of us in due time as best they can so we have to be ready for that and i'm going to go get them that would be my first reaction as a former golden gloves fighter i tell the guys around the y sometimes i'm a i'm a golden gloves boxing champion <clears throat> i won the golden gloves Back in 1947, oh, well, <laughs> 61 years ago. And then later, you know, they kind of smile. They go, well, you're not very frightening anymore. <laughs> I just kid them about that. But anyway, having that old nature, you know, it could come up again. I'll get you. I'll punch you in the nose. But no, you better say, no, I better have help. God help me so I don't have that normal human reaction. To love these people, Father, you take care of it. Be patient, and he'll take care of it. He always does. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And God tells us that. So we've got to have that attitude, and let's build that family atmosphere that I described, like, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Wolverton and Mrs. Shepherd helping and bringing people food and taking care of the people who are sick and taking care of the young women with babies. And just really try to do that. 
every way we can in this church, our church, here in Charlotte, and you brethren around the world in your churches as best you can. Let's build that. When new people come in, and some of our former brethren come in, are they going to see that atmosphere? Are they going to see people that say, we're watching you if your hair gets a little long or your shirt skirt gets a little short or you came in late? Why didn't you come in before? What's wrong with you? We judge them. We want to put them down. We want to catch them at something without realizing. Don't do that. That's the worst thing you can do. You hurt them. You belittle them. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know their sufferings and their disillusionments from other events that you didn't go through, perhaps. You don't know their hopes and dreams. Be kind to them. Forgive them. Love them. That's what we've got to try to do the best way we can. And none of us will do it perfectly. I understand that. I don't either. But we've got to work on it. You pray for me and I will pray for you. We've got to be that way the more we, uh, you know, the most we can. My wife and I try to entertain and be hospitable, and we've, we've had over 100 of our brethren in our home in the last few years because we've had a number of big events. But as my wife gets on up in her 60s and, and the health situation she's had, she can't do it as much as some of the young women used to out in Pasadena. I know that. But some of you younger women can pick up the gauntlet, and you can help others and serve them and try to. And all of us should do the best we can, the best we're able to do. Each one of us. And we should try to build the atmosphere the best we can here in this church and in every church of God and the living church of God around the world. Now turn, if you would, to another example here of the early church, the really early church, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And here notice in verse 44, this, of course, was right after Peter's inspired sermon on the day of Pentecost and the weeks and months following that. It says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. It's not teaching communism. You read the entire Bible and the rest of the New Testament. Each one had his own house and property. But for a while, they had hundreds and perhaps even a few thousand Jews from all around the world. And boy, when they saw the fire coming down literally from the ceiling where they were meeting... And they saw these men speak supernaturally in different tongues. And they began to see people healed and this and that. Hundreds of them apparently stayed over. They stayed over. It was kind of a miniature feast of tabernacles that went on for months. And here were people from all these different places, Crete and Rome and Italy and Greece, and, and people, the local Jews helped them. They tried to help them. And so they all had things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. It didn't say they sold everything and became communists, but they tried to help each other. So continuing daily with one accord, where did they meet? They weren't turning against Judaism. They did turn against, you know, some of their traditions, but they were meeting in the temple. Yes, the church of God started in the temple. They kept the Sabbath. They kept the holy days for decades in the true Christians for the last 2,000 years. And breaking bread from house to house. They were eating in each other's homes. You see, that attitude of hospitality, sharing, giving, serving. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved because they had that wonderful family spirit, eating together, feeding each other, having each other stay over in their homes and all that kind of thing. So there was a wonderful family spirit going on there. And then uh, back in Acts chapter 12, notice here, if you would then, brethren, in chapter 12 of the book of Acts, this example. And uh, 
try to get there a little more quickly. Now let's begin in verse 1. Acts 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. So he began to persecute God's church. Then he killed James. God promises, brethren, you know that, to protect the church as a whole, that is, those who are watching and praying. I shouldn't say the church as a whole, but the Philadelphians, those who are really watching and praying during this coming great tribulation. But some, he shows in other scriptures, will be killed along the way. And they were back then too. So that wasn't strange. He killed James, one of the original apostles, with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. God inspired this. The church was obviously keeping God's holy days. And this is now way up several years after, maybe eight or ten years after everything was supposedly nailed to the cross. But God's law was not nailed to the cross. The Sabbath was not nailed to the cross. The holy days were not nailed to the cross. Christ was nailed to the cross, and the record of our sins was nailed to the cross. That's all. But the days of unleavened and bread were obviously being kept by God's people. So when he apprehended him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. And they knew that he probably would kill Peter, just like he'd kill James, you see. Therefore, Peter was kept in prison, but constant... Notice, brethren, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Over and over they were praying, Deliver your servant Peter. We need him. They prayed for him regularly. And, of course, Herod was going to bring him out, and he was bound with two chains, and an angel came and let him out supernaturally. And so when Peter had come to himself after he got out of prison supernaturally, verse 11, he said, Now I know for certain the Lord has sent his angel. Yes, there are angels, and there are angels today to help and watch over us. And if we have this attitude of genuinely loving each other, helping each other, taking care of each other, God will bless us a lot more. He will bless us more as a church. You know that. And has delivered me from the hand of Herod. So when he considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. This is the one who probably wrote the Gospel of Mark, young John Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now, we don't have prayer meetings. Some of the Protestants do. But if you do it in the right way, it's not a sin. They were doing it there. In a type of emergency, many of the brethren came to one home and they prayed together. Maybe they knelt all around the living room and one of them got on, led the prayer and they got on their knees and cried out to God. Mr. Herbert Armstrong had several of us evangelists. Mr. Partin will remember that when his wife was dying, come up to his home. And we knelt around his little prayer table there in his study and prayed to God that he would prolong the life of Mrs. Armstrong. And God did not hear that prayer. He let her die at age 75 and one half. She was about eight months older than Mr. Armstrong. So God had given her five and a half years beyond this three score and ten. And for reasons known to God alone, uh, you know, and I don't know why he let her die. But Mr. Armstrong had his prayer. Later, when one was turning aside, one of our leading men, he had some of us up to pray again, asking God to help and so on and keep the church together, which God did do in spite of the sin of one of the members. But we were praying together on our knees with Mr. Armstrong. And there are other times we prayed together over things. And we may need to, brethren, 
sometime I might ask all of you to literally bow your heads or even get down in the aisle and pray and, and if some great emergency comes and I thought of having our leading ministers here in one of our meetings do that on occasion and it wouldn't be wrong to do that. In fact, it would be good, you know, if there's a real emergency and people are dying or some horrible thing is happening, that we get down before God and say, Father in heaven, we come together here as your ministers at your headquarters. We need your help. We need your mercy. We need your divine intervention. We're together as a family and we cry out. We're not embarrassed to pray together. So they did do that. There was this atmosphere and many were praying together. And then Peter knocked at the door and this little girl runs and answers and she's excited. It's Peter, it's Peter. But they said, it can't be Peter. Kind of shows they were human like we are. They'd just been praying for it. They couldn't believe it happened so quick. (laughs) He was knocking at the door. No, honey, it can't be Peter. Well, then they finally said, maybe it's his angel. That's interesting. Another reference to angel. They knew there were angels. They thought, well, you know, an angel usually appears like a young man in the Bible. They said, it's his angel. But... He was there. They finally opened the door and were astonished. He motioned, be quiet. Don't let the authorities hear. And he declared how God had brought him out of the prison, verse 17. And he said, go tell these things to James. Kind of interesting. We read in verse 2 or 3 that James was killed, had his head chopped off. Go tell these things to James. (laughs) Okay. Most of you know, of course, this was now James, the Lord's brother. Christ's physical brother, James, was now converted. And he became the presiding apostle at the headquarters church, we find in Acts 15, at Jerusalem. And Peter and Paul did the talking, and then James said, therefore, my decision, he made the kind of decision for the church. The three of them were the leading ones at that point. Peter was the overall leader the longest, but James was leader. Tell these things to James and to the brethren. And so they, he went to another place, lest they felt that he might be in that place where these people were. He had to hide out in a safer place. But the brethren were praying for him. There was that deep love and family atmosphere which God wants us to have. And we might find that, you know, Mr. Ames or Dr. Winnell are off in jail sometime and they're about to uh, you know, have something happen to them. That would never happen to me, so no, <laughs> we need to pray for them. <laughs> now, if it happens to me, I hope you pray for me too. But at any rate, these things are going to happen, brethren. Uh, the basic pattern will probably continue in a different way time, but we need to have that family spirit. Yes, today, brethren, as I said, we are scattered. I know that some of you may live 30 or 50 miles out of town and come in, and you can't just go all over and we have more old people as a proportion in our church. And we can't expect Mr. and Mrs. McNaughton to be running all over Charlotte uh, washing people's windows <laughs> and helping the young women having babies. And uh, you know what I mean. We're, and I'm getting older, so I can't do as much as if I were 30 or 40 years ago. But we should try within the parameters of our age, our energy, our opportunity. Let's build that spirit that family spirit. We need to do that with all of our hearts. So we can and we must try to build that atmosphere where when new people come into this church or some of our former brethren from other fellowships or some of our brethren come in who are just out there hurting. Think about it. In 1990, 150,000 people were attending the Peace of Tabernacles in Worldwide. Where are they? Only about 30,000, 35,000 now attending any 
well-known Church of God group. Where are the others? Some have died, but there are tens of thousands just out there confused and they're hurting because they saw what happened with Raider and the the uh, receivership and Ted and his problems and all the, the Koch heresies. And they thought, what's going on? And they just got hurt and they dropped away. I understand that. That's why I say don't judge them when they come back. They're hurt. I had a better opportunity to know what's going on than they did. And God knows that because I'm always one who's watching what's going on, maybe more than it should anyway, but that's my mind. I figure those things out. And secondly, I was right there, right there at headquarters in a unique situation, having taught so many of these men that were beginning to hear these things and be concerned. And I would have lunch one week with Mr. Ames and Dr. Hay and the next week with John Halford and, and uh, you know, someone else just named these men all through the headquarters church. And they one part group would tell me one thing and one another. I put it all together better than some of them did. I saw what was going on. I knew these changes were coming. And maybe God guided my life so I would be there and able to, you know, move at the time I did. But whatever happened, if someone came a little later... God knows. Each one has to come at his own time when he understands. So we don't need to judge each other. But we've got to build the love and the kindness, the forgiveness and appreciation for one another in spite of the problems we've had and develop a sense of trust, a sense of loyalty to one another under Christ. Yes, someone's been real bad and you sense they're still real carnal, but don't judge too harshly. Try to err on the side of mercy Try to err on the side of forgiveness. It may be better to be taken advantage of once in a while than to be too strict and too standoffish. I'll always remember once or twice being up at Lake Arrowhead. One guy in the church said, Oh, you have a cabin. No, I never had a cabin anywhere. <laughs> a big bear, I mean. I've never owned a cabin at all. But we were up there and, and these people, a man and wife, were there and they were asking for help or something and had a sign. And my wife said, Stop and... I didn't do that at all. They're probably just beggars and went on. Remember that? I think she did that twice. And she had more mercy at that case than I did. I was so used to being taken advantage of. So I looked back later and I thought I, it would have been better to give to them, even though they were going to go right down the street and get drunk or use it on drugs. It would have been better to be taken advantage of by them than not to give at all. Now, I don't mean you need to give everything to every beggar. You can see that there's some beggars that are just professional beggars, and they're on, I've seen some around here in Pasadena. They have their regular stand, and they're every day, and they're young, you know, 35 or 40 year old young men. They're in good health, and they just, that's their, that's their thing. They like to stand out and do that. They could get a job. Some people yell out their window at them. I've never done that. Get a job! I've heard them do that. <laughs> you know, but so, Use your mind, but it's better to err on the side of mercy than to err the other way, if you follow me. Love each other. Love the people in the world, too. Help others. Serve. Build this family atmosphere. When people come into this church, they will see an atmosphere of love, of kindness, of mercy, of forgiveness, of service. That you're serving the young women having children. You're serving the sick people. You're serving the old people. You're serving those in need and serving one another as social opportunities as much as you can. In spite of being so, uh, you know, separated, and I know that we're, we're more separated than we used to be sometimes. One thing we have a problem here at headquarters too, so many of our wives are working wives, and I know Mrs. Pyle is working all day, and, and Mrs. Uh, uh, Lucky Lyons and Mrs. Uh, 
uh, Lara Prejean, and it's harder for a woman to work all day and do all the things that, let's say, older Mrs. Pyle and Mrs. Uh, Hammer and others were doing that were not working all day, too. You know, they could, they could have the whole day to do all this stuff. Very few women were working women back in those days, so that was an advantage. But we've got to do the best we can, and we can develop that atmosphere of love and kindness and service. Our single people will be greatly benefited by that, too. There are single people among us, and, you know, they don't have a family, some of them. And some of you know them around here, just very lovely, wonderful, young, single people. But if we have atmosphere and we build, have them over in different groups, that's their family. We become their family, and we can serve them as well as older single people, sick people, and so forth. So we need to do all these things and pitch in every way we can to do these things. And brethren, uh, turning back to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, if you would, here is something that God certainly wants us to learn and it's a very wonderful thing that I have referred to and will continue to from time to time, but inspiring Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's talking about how you've not come to Mount Sinai that's shaking and smoke going up with the power of God at Sinai. But in Hebrews 12 verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels... You've come to that extended family of God, even the angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who registered in heaven to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Someday, hopefully not too far off, if we make it, if we pray, if we love each other, forgive each other, serve each other, and serve Christ with all our being, we will be there and we will be in a spirit family based on love and joy and peace and service and kindness and just outflowing concern. And if we develop that attitude now, it's sure going to be a lot more fun being with those people and being with one another. The spirits of just men made perfect. We can interact with Peter and James and John. We can interact with Abraham and Isaac and Israel. We can interact with Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Ruth, and the righteous women of old. We can interact with people like that throughout all eternity and talk to them, fellowship with them, help plan, you know, various projects throughout the earth. We're going to clean up Pakistan. We're going to clean up Afghanistan. We're going to clean up the Soviet Union and China. The people that are hurting you hear about things blowing up over here and their oppressors, dictators oppressing them all through these various continents of Africa and Asia and the Middle East. Butchery people. We're going to stop it. And working together in love, we're going to bring about a whole new world under Jesus Christ. But we can be a family. We can be a team now and building that atmosphere, looking forward to that time. So let's do that and ask God's help. We'll need it so that we really do that with all our hearts.